All right, well, this morning for review, what I wanna do is go back through Mark and look at the chapters that we've been in up until this point. And uh, a practice that I have myself that I find beneficial is going through and uh, summarizing each chapter of the Bible uh, with either trying to condense what is taking place within that chapter or picking out a, a certain aspect of that chapter that I can use to, to highlight what that chapter is about and try to commit that to memory. And so I'm going to share my chapter summaries of Mark with you as we go through and review where we've been up until this point. So in chapter one, uh, my personal summary for chapter one is that Jesus gathers fishermen. Now, we remember that's only one aspect of what took place in chapter one. We saw that uh, Jesus did gather uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, these four fishermen to himself. Um, I think that was like 20 to, or 16 to 24, somewhere in there that those things took place. But obviously there's a lot more that takes place within chapter one. I could have summarized that chapter with uh, a number of things. Um, verse one in particular, that it was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's very important. That's central to where Mark is going to take the whole rest of his conversation throughout this gospel. Uh, we were introduced to John the Baptist in chapter 1. We saw the, the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. We saw that uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, uh, that he healed a leper towards the end of the chapter. All these would be good summaries for chapter 1. Uh, I just chose Jesus gathering disciples because I happened to summarize other uh, gospel chapters that way. Um, Matthew 3, for example, is, uh, we see the same thing, John the Baptist in, in chapter 3. and chapter 4, we see that Satan tempts Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, we see that Jesus rebukes the, uh, the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. But those are some aspects of what went on in Mark chapter one. I know that was a long time ago. That was back in October, I think. We started Mark chapter one, but it's still good to remember where we've been as we consider where we are and where we're going. Uh, Mark chapter two talks about legalism. Uh, we saw the paralytic lowered down through the ceiling and how Jesus forgives this man's sins and how the scribes and Pharisees call out Jesus, or they don't even call him out. It's just within their hearts that they wonder, who is this man that he thinks that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. They're very uh, legalistic in this, throughout this whole chapter. In verse 16 of chapter 2, it says that when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came to him and they said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So a lot of this kind of uh, legalistic type thinking. Why aren't, why aren't they washing their hands? Why aren't they fasting? Um, why is Jesus teaching on the Sabbath? Chapter 2 is really summed up by this aspect of legalism amongst the Pharisees and the scribes. In chapter 3, we see Jesus explicitly heal on the Sabbath. Uh, he does that purposefully to try to make a point that, uh, that 
he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, we see him heal a man's withered hand. And then later on in this chapter, we see that um, Jesus' family thinks that he's just crazy. He's gone off the deep end. Jesus is nuts. We need to come and bring him home. And at the same time, we see that the scribes think that he is demonic. Uh, so start to see these factions and different people as they're responding to Jesus respond negatively, uh, even as he is forgiving sins, even as he is um, displaying his authority over the Sabbath, people respond negatively. Chapter 4, we have a, a bunch of parables. I picked out the parable, the most prominent one, the sower and the soils, with the four different types of soils. Uh, there are several other parables that take place in that same section, first 20 or so verses of chapter 4, the parable of the lamp, the man who casts seed on the soil, the parable of the mustard seed, all these parables that are talking about the kingdom, uh, kind of in line with Matthew 13, the parable kingdom, the kingdom parables, rather. And then towards the end of chapter 4, that's when we see Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves and uh, just completely strike fear within the disciples. These disciples who were already somewhat fearful because of the storm, but even more fearful after seeing the, the power and authority that Jesus exercises over the, the nature itself. In chapter 5, we saw Jesus uh, cast out this legion of demons. And then later on, after the first 20 or so verses, we see uh, him being introduced to this man Jairus. And he has this concern for his daughter and this need that he has for his daughter to be healed. And that's all interrupted by the, uh, the hemorrhaging woman. And then uh, it comes back and wraps up with Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. So just within a, a little bit over a chapter, going back into chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see Jesus exercise his authority over nature and over demons, over disease, and over death. Uh, showing just in that short amount of time his vast uh, scope of authority. In chapter 6, we see that Jesus walks on water. But even prior to him walking on water, that takes place at the, the end of the chapter. Again, that's just how I've summarized that chapter. Uh, we see that Jesus was rejected in Nazareth by his own people from his own city, his hometown. He then sent out the twelve. And then we have this account of Herod killing or, or having John the Baptist killed. Uh, and then the, the feeding of the 5,000. And then after that was when Jesus walked on water. So a lot of stuff just jam-packed into chapter 6. Um, but yeah, all of Mark. This is just the, the MO of Mark, right? That's his, his, how he operates. Um, he's just boom, boom, boom. One thing onto the next. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Um, just showing how Jesus progressed to the cross. And we're getting closer and closer, even in chapter 9. Uh, chapter 7, we see uh, Jesus address wicked hearts. Uh, we see more legalism in uh, verse 5. Jesus asking the, uh, or the scribes rather, asking Jesus, why do your disciples not wash their hands? And in verses Verse 20 of chapter 7, it says that he, Jesus, was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, this is what defiles the man. 
For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. Those just few verses really kind of summarize that chapter, talking about how Jesus is addressing the the wickedness of the heart, the depravity of man, and how it's not just our, our outward appearance, it's not the things that go into a man that defile a man, but what comes out of him. We are uh, from within, just very utterly depraved. Um, later on in that chapter, we read about the Syrophoenician woman, this woman from Syrophoenicia who just wants to eat the crumbs that fall from the table uh, of the Jews. We All throughout this, we're seeing more and more glimpses that Jesus is opening up to the Gentiles. He came to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And then at the end of that chapter, we see that he heals a deaf and a mute man. In chapter 8, we see that Peter confesses Jesus as Christ. This is where we start to see people, especially the disciples, start to understand and, and begin to grasp at who Jesus is. But they still, they're not quite there. They still struggle. In verse 12 of chapter 8, we see more evidence that Jesus is shifting his focus from Israel to the Gentiles. 8.12 says that Jesus, sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so he begins once again to kind of move on to those who are willing to, to listen, who have a uh, a heart to receive, who have eyes to see. In fact, he, uh, after feeding the, the 4,000 in this Gentile region, he goes on to really call out and rebuke the disciples for their lack of belief, for the fact that uh, they are blind, for their misunderstanding hearts. He's pretty harsh with them. Um, and then shortly after, we have the, the great confession of Peter, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and almost within the next breath, He uh, rebukes God, uh, God in the flesh, Jesus himself. And Jesus has to turn around and show him what a real rebuke looks like and tells him, uh, you need to get behind me, Satan, because my goal, my purpose is once again to go to the cross. That's what Mark is pointing towards throughout his whole gospel. It's all focused on the cross. And then uh, finally in chapter 9, where we are now, we see... Um, I've titled that, Help My Unbelief, as we looked at last week, this man just crying out in in desperation. Yes, I believe, but but I still struggle. I'm still human. Help my unbelief. Um, Just this desperate, honest plea. Um, But prior to that, we saw the the transfiguration, Jesus taking his his inner circle up to the mountain. Um, And then he he comes down. He just finds a complete wreck, right? He finds these um, people who who want to come to him, and they want to... uh, perhaps just see some magic tricks like we read about in John chapter 6 or just there to be fed, to have some bread. Uh, perhaps they're truly there to, to worship him. And yet we have on this, kind of on the side, this discussion, this argument or disagreement between the other nine disciples that he left and the scribes. And they're, they're fighting over here. And then there's some kid over here who's convulsing and uh, seizing. And his dad, who's just crying out, screaming out, begging that Jesus would heal him. So all kinds of stuff going on once he gets down from this transfiguration experience. 
Uh, and then even within that, we see that Mark's focus was more on the, the father's faith than on the boy. Even though the boy is mentioned, even though Jesus addressed the boy, it was the, the faith that really kind of took center stage. And once again, this desperate plea from this man, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. And just to kind of show where we're going, even after chapter 9, uh, in chapter 10, we'll look at the rich young ruler. Chapter 11 uh, is Palm Sunday. So we're, we're right there where uh, we're just about to see this Holy Week being introduced in a couple of chapters. Jesus entering into Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, chapter 12, we'll talk briefly about marriage in heaven. Of course, that's not the whole chapter, but being where we live in Utah, that's kind of important um, that we're going to be like the angels who are in heaven, who neither marry nor are given in marriage. Chapter 13, we'll probably spend quite a while on chapter 13 talking about things to come um, that's uh, comparable to Matthew 24 or Luke 21, talking about the tribulation and uh, the second coming and judgment. So we could spend some time there. Chapter 14, Peter denies Christ. 15, Jesus is buried. And 16, we'll talk about the resurrection plus a couple of uh, extra verses at the end, the extended ending of Mark. Um, but we will get there eventually. As you see, we are more than halfway through the book of Mark. But let's go ahead and pick up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 9. Before we do that, are there any thoughts or questions on any of the stuff we've covered up until this point in Mark? You can see we've been over quite a bit, but um, we want to have an understanding of where we've been before we continue on. Yes, Jerry. Well, I just, for me, it's terribly helpful to keep in mind that this is all what we're, what Mark is telling is all from Peter's, and mostly from Peter's recollection, from Peter's viewpoint. Yes. And to see how Peter himself is betrayed, basically by Peter, is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, he is very honest throughout his whole account. He's, which is just evidence of the the divine authorship of scripture of the the truth and veracity of scripture because he's not trying to make himself look good he's not trying to exalt himself and say oh look at all the the great things that i peter did mark why don't you go ahead and write about those no he's talked about how he denied christ right in in chapter 14 he's very clear and very honest about that so yeah it's good. Uh, it really helps to me to, to read peter's letters yes this in mind is a totally, totally, totally different person that wrote First Peter and Second Peter that wrote about the fact that are out in the Gospels. Yep. Good. Yeah, I'm sure that somewhere in there in chapter 14, 15, or 16, we'll go over and we'll look at um, John chapter 21 where they have breakfast on the beach and where Jesus has this encounter with Peter and tells him, Peter, do you, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Uh, this kind of restoration of Peter. Uh, do you love me more than these? I don't think he's talking about the, the other disciples. I think he's talking about what Peter was out there doing. He was out there fishing. Uh, he had kind of climbed back into his hole and said, I, I'm going to go back to the way, the way things were. I'm going to kind of distance myself from Jesus because I, I messed up. I screwed up. I'm, I'm, I'm Peter, right? And Jesus says, no, do you, do you love me more than, than fishing? Do you love me more than these boats? Let's go out and let's fish for some men. And he kind of restores him. So it'll be good to take a look at that for sure. 
All right. Well, let's move on then. Uh, let's look at Mark 9, and we'll start in verse 30. <clears throat> I was hoping to get to this last week, but that didn't happen. So let's read it now. Mark 9, 30 through 32. Somebody else want to read that for us? All right. And you'll remember we've looked at this concept before already back in chapter 8 of Jesus foretelling his death. And that's what really caused Peter to, to open up his mouth and uh, stick his foot in it to say, hmm, God forbid, you, you, you can't go to the cross, Jesus. That's not what you're going to have. And that's when he was rebuked and told, and get behind me, Satan. Go ahead. 930 through 32, please. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and they did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. All right. So we see here that Jesus now, at, at this point, he has shifted his focus and his attention uh, to the twelve. And so before he had been focused on more of his public ministry going throughout uh, these different regions, and now he's going to kind of zoom in and, and focus on these 12 and really pour into them um, while, while they're there with him. Um, as we continue through the rest of the Gospels, his public ministry is now taking a, a back seat and he's teaching these 12 who are going to become ultimately the, the foundation of the church, uh, the foundation that the church is built upon of which Jesus himself is the, the chief cornerstone. And so he's really taking this time to, to focus on them, whereas before it was more of a, a public affair. And we see, again, that Jesus spells out the reality and the necessi necessity of his coming death and the resurrection, letting them know ahead of time. He's, again, said it before, back in chapter 8, and he's going to say it again, let them know exactly what it is that he's going to be doing uh, but the disciples are, are struggling with this teaching. They're having a hard time really embracing the concept that their Lord, their Messiah, has to suffer and die. And in verse 12, or not 12, 32 rather, um, it says that they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. <clears throat> if we look over in, in Matthew, Matthew 17, 22 and 23, it says that the Son of Man, this is a, a parallel passage, saying that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So Mark says they didn't really understand, they were confused, and they were afraid to ask. But Matthew says in his parallel passage that they were grieved, they were sorrowful at this statement that Jesus was going to... Um, to have to suffer and die. And so um, there are two different aspects. Again, we've talked about how all the different authors of the Gospels are coming from different places. They have a different perspective and they're writing to a different audience with a different purpose. And uh, Chrysostom, a fourth century theologian, he gives his perspective on uh, the, the difference between Mark's understanding and Matthew's understanding. Mark, again, saying that they didn't understand. Matthew saying that they were afraid. So Chrysostom, oh, I should have shown you that before. My bad. That's 
that verse in Matthew, Matthew 22, or 17, 22, and 23. But Chrysostom says that if ignorant, how could they be sorrowful? Because they were not altogether ignorant. They knew that he was soon to die, for they had continually been told about it. But just as this death might, might mean they did not grasp clearly, what did I just read? But just what this death might mean, they did not grasp clearly. They did not see that there would be a resurrection. This is why they were grieved. So I don't think that those two statements that Matthew and Mark made are exclusive, that they could not fully understand, and yet they could understand to a certain point, yes, our Savior, our Messiah, he is saying that he's going to, to suffer and die. So um, I think that those are two things that we can kind of hold in tension together. Uh, they, it says at the end of verse 32 that they were afraid to ask Jesus about this. Um, I wonder if perhaps they were thinking back to when Peter was rebuked, when Peter had just barely asked Jesus and kind of confronted Jesus on his death, and they didn't want to be rebuked either, so perhaps they were afraid in that sense. Um, or possibly uh, they were afraid to answer, just preferring this blissful ignorance of not really wanting to, to face the idea, the reality of the fact that their Messiah was going to die. Um, just kind of thinking, okay, well, he must mean something different. He must have some kind of secret, deeper spiritual meaning. Uh, I, I don't think I'm going to ask. We're just not even going to explore that because I'm afraid of what that would do to my theology, my understanding that he is going to come here and he's going to establish his kingdom. Um, I'd, I'd rather just not ask. Let's go on and just go on to the next scene. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's continue uh, trotting away. In verse 33, it says that they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What are you discuss? What were you discussing along the way? So this has been quite a while now since they've been in Capernaum. They've been off in these more Gentile regions, and remember, Capernaum is Jesus' hometown, so to speak. It's his home base where his ministry operation was really headquartered out of. And they were in. It says in verse 33, they were in the house. Um, this is thought by many to be Peter's house. It's referenced several times up until this point in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, chapter 3, verse 30, uh, or verse 20, rather, and then chapter 7, verse 17. It's a, a house that is referred to as a house, and once again, may likely be Peter's house. And before, they were debating with the scribes after they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and now we see that they are reasoning amongst themselves. So they're not having this disagreement, this argument with the scribes, but they're still uh, pondering amongst themselves. And Jesus, as he very often does, he begins engaging the minds of the disciples by asking them a question. And there have been countless books written on how to evangelize, how to disciple, how to uh, parent or, or counsel that... Um, really could be better understood if we just simply imitate the, the practice of Jesus and ask some more questions. By just asking questions, we would be aided in, in all these areas of evangelism, discipleship, uh, counseling, parenting, 
by asking questions. It's a, a great strategy that Jesus always employs, or often employs, and we would do well to, to do as well. And right away we can tell that Jesus' question kind of strikes a nerve with the disciples. Not because they're quick to, to give an answer, because they're not, they're kind of shy and embarrassed, uh, but because they were immediately ashamed of what they had been talking about, of the content of their discussion. So what is it that they were discussing along the way? What were they talking about up until this point? Yeah, that, they should have reason to be a little bit ashamed, right? Uh, verse 34 says, They kept silent, for on the way they had been discussing with one another which of them was the greatest. That's kind of cringe, right? Uh, to be talking about that in the, the presence of Jesus himself, who is going to be the greatest. Uh, well, remember, they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And who was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. And, and who else? James and John. And Peter, James, and John, right? Jesus took his, his inner circle with him. They went up to this transfiguration. They saw Jesus in all of his glory, all of his splendor being transfigured, uh, transformed really into this uh, glory that he had with the Father before the world was. And, and Moses and Elijah are there, and it's just this great experience. And... Do you remember what Jesus told them at the end of that experience? Do you say? The word of God is no short. No. Oh, that's in 2 in Peter. That's a good one. In 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Uh, but he told them, not go, go and tell all the other nine about this experience. He says, no, you, you keep this quiet until after my resurrection. And Luke tells us in Luke 9, 46 that, um, no, Luke 9, 36 that they did keep silent and they reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So they were quiet about it and they didn't report to anybody. And so I wonder, and it's been proposed that perhaps this experience sparked this, these thoughts and this conversation about who is the greatest. Because I could totally imagine them coming down from the mountain and Remember, immediately when they got down, there's all this commotion going on, right? The people coming up to Jesus, this fight going on, this demon-possessed kid. Um, and then from there, they, they went on to Capernaum. And so on the way to Capernaum, they're trying to catch up. They have a little bit of peace and quiet. And so perhaps the other disciples are coming up and saying, Hey, Pete, what happened up on the mountain? You, you went away with James and John. And uh, what was that all about? What took place up there? And I could see Peter saying, Well, you know what? I would love to tell you, I really would, but uh, you know what, I, I can't. It's kind of a secret. Uh, Jesus told me to, to keep it on the hush-hush. Only me and the, the sons of thunder, we're the only ones who are allowed to know uh, because you know, we're, we're kind of special. We're, kinda, we're friends with Jesus, and he told us that you're not allowed to know. We, we can't tell you because uh, we're special. I, I'm the rock, and these are the, the sons of thunder. right? You, what, what's your nickname, Bartholomew, right? Uh, you, you don't have the right to know this. Um, and so I could see this sparking this kind of uh, superiority complex and them having this debate, this discussion. Who is the, the greatest? And uh, in verse 34 of Mark 9, it seems as if they're, um, they're arguing over who is presently the greatest. It says that they were talking with one another which of them was the greatest. 
Well, in Luke, in Luke 9.46, it says, which of them might be the greatest? And then in Matthew 18.1, these are all parallel passages talking about the same scenario, same situation. It says, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so it's not really clear if they're asking about their, their current position, who has the highest current position or the highest future position or maybe some sort of spiritual position, but it was definitely driven by selfish desire, wanting to be greater than one another, greater than the other disciples. Um, and despite the rebuke that Jesus is about to give them for this type of thinking, we'll see the same thing in a couple of weeks. Well, not in a couple of weeks, but whenever we get into chapter 10, uh, in a separate event where James and John are clearly talking about their future position in Jesus' future kingdom. And they're, they're vying for their future position in this kingdom. Um, there's a lot of selfishness going on, not really uh, focusing where they ought to be focusing. And then in verse 35, it says, Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, so Jesus is sitting down, getting ready to teach. Remember in that day when teachers were ready to teach, they wouldn't stand up behind a, a pulpit or a podium, but they would sit down, and the other people, they would come and gather around them. So Jesus is sitting down, uh, signaling that he is ready to, to teach them, ready to impart some wisdom to these clowns who are all vying for position, wondering who's the greatest, right? So he sits down to teach, and he hits them with a, another whopper, right? He is... Uh, teaching them as one who has authority, not as the others teach, but he is teaching them, not trying to, to tickle their ears, not trying to please their, their fancies, but he's going to shoot them straight. And he says to them that if anybody wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is radical, that Jesus is here completely upsetting their, their cultural paradigm of greatness, of what it means to be He's flipping it on its head, demolishing any uh, preconceived idea that they might have had of, of greatness, redefining their understanding of greatness. It's not the strongest or the most powerful or uh, the most influential. It's not the, the richest or the, the best looking, not the, the most popular person that is the greatest. He says, no, it's the, the person who is a, a servant of all. He is the greatest. And the the word for servant here, it's distinct from slave. So it's not somebody who is uh, just by, by nature, by, by way of birth, mandated and, and told that because of their position in life, they have to submit to somebody else, they have to serve somebody else. But it's speaking of somebody who voluntarily subjugates themselves to another. It, the Greek word is diakonos, the, where we get the word deacon from, somebody who serves and uh, puts others above themselves. We see in verse 36 that he uses a, an example here, uh, a teaching illustration. It says that taking a, a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And so again, following their, their cultural guidelines um, for what greatness looked like, a child certainly wasn't considered great at all in that culture. They were considered the, the least of the least, down with the, the slaves and the servants. Um, 
perhaps even lower than that because the, the infant mortality rate was so high, you're not even sure how long that, that child has to live. So a child wasn't considered great at all. And Jesus says uh, that um, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me, and whoever uh, receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And so again, Jesus is highlighting the need for humility and for submission, uh, not for self-exaltation or, or puffing up. He's trying to reframe their thinking, trying to reshape their worldview, giving them uh, a true understanding of what it looks like to be the greatest in his true estimation. Now, back in verse 31, I skipped over something kind of important in view of this submission in the kingdom. So back in verse 31, there's a a little bit of a disagreement on how to understand this verse amongst translators when it says that he was teaching his disciples and he was telling them that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. Some translations will say that he is to be betrayed into the hands of men, like the the RSV or the New King James. Um, But as I just read, uh, delivered is how it reads in the, the New American Standard, the ESV, and the Old King James. And the, the distinction here, the, the difference, really focuses on who is doing this delivering. So if he is being betrayed into the hands of these men, it's focusing on his later betrayal by men, namely by Judas, right? That Judas will betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, however, if it is to be understood as delivered, then the focus is on God, the, the Father, delivering him into the hands of men. So uh, I think that the, the NASB, the ESV, the, the Old King James, I got it right, focusing on the fact that Jesus is willfully submitting himself to the Father who is going to be delivering him over into the hands of men. And this really conveys a teaching of Isaiah 53.10, which we looked at a, a few weeks ago, talking about how the Lord was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief so that he would endure this as a, a guilt offering. It was the Father's will that Jesus would go to the cross. And then also this focuses on Jesus' uh, humility himself to put himself in this position, to submit himself even to, uh, to take on flesh and then to the point of death, death on a cross. So I'm going to read from Philippians, if I can get to Philippians. Let's see. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction or compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So Jesus is telling them, you need to imitate me, right? Be of the same mind. Uh, look at what I did and reflect that, imitate that. And then verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he did exist in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of men, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the, the concept that I think Jesus is trying to convey even back here in Mark chapter 9, that to be great means to make yourself low. And he was the ultimate example of what that means to uh, display humility. So he's teaching that this act of submission, which he models and he exemplifies, is to be imitated by others. And that's why he said in uh, verse 9 that you need to, he takes this child and places a child as an example of how they ought to uh, control themselves and see themselves. Let's see. Oh, 35, not 25. My bad. Uh, yeah, if anyone wants to be first, then he shall be last of all and servant of all. That's what uh, our, our ultimate goal ought to be as followers of Christ. Not only are we to, to make ourselves low by becoming servant of all, but we need to regard others as more important than ourselves, as better than ourselves, as he said in Philippians 2.3. And that mentality should really lead us to receiving others of low standing. As he mentions in verse 37, if one receives a child, then he also receives me. And in receiving me, he receives the Father. This is the, the worldview shift that he's trying to get them to embrace, that he's trying to get them to receive, to see that uh, it has real-life results on how they live and how they view and treat others uh, based upon how they see themselves. If they're seeing themselves as, as great and the, the child is low, then they're not going to embrace the child. They're not going to embrace Christ or the Father. Um, we also see here that Jesus really doesn't leave any room for accepting him and for rejecting the Father who has sent him. A lot of people have that kind of mentality, and they'll say, well, I, I really like the, the God of the New Testament. I really like Jesus and his love and his compassion, but the God of the Old Testament, he is just, uh, he is vile and brutal and, and wrathful, and uh, he's capricious. Uh, I, I want to stick with Jesus in the New Testament. Or people will say, yeah, Jesus is, again, loving and, and gracious, but Paul, man, Paul is just, he's, he's blunt and he's rude, and, and I don't like Paul. And Jesus says, no, there, there's none of that. I'm not going to leave any room for that. Uh, if you accept the, the emissary that the Father sent, then you accept the Father as the one who sent him. Or if you accept Paul as the emissary, then you must accept the one who sent that servant on his behalf. You can't pick and choose. It's a, a package deal. You must embrace the, the one who sent and the one who was sent as well. He doesn't allow for that kind of bifurcation. All right, any thoughts or questions up until verse 37? Jerry might, but maybe not. Well, I don't like to be the only one talking, but to me it's interesting that the, the idea up to them, of the, the, the concept of the Messiah is you know, coming and immediately setting up kings and kingdom here on earth and taking over and, and so Jesus has been attacking that by telling him, telling them that he was going to be killed which is just utterly inconceivable to them but here after the transfiguration they seem some of them seem to start 
the, the pushing that onto the future, where they're talking about who will be the the greatest in the future. So they're they might they're starting to rationalize that if Jesus dies, then then maybe the kingdom won't be here and now, but will be there and in heaven. Maybe there's anyway. It start, looks like they might be at least entering letting that enter their heads a little bit, that it's not exactly the way they thought. Yeah. Or maybe that immediately following his resurrection, he'll establish a kingdom right then. But they don't talk about the resurrection. That yeah. seems to be too hard for them, even though they saw him bring the people back from the dead. Yeah. And even though he's mentioned it a couple times up until this point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph. Uh, so do we know, or do we know if there's any speculation about why Jesus specific disciples to go up to see his transfiguration? Um, the, the best guess is because they're going to be leaders in the church later on. Uh, James is the, the first one to be martyred in Acts 12, and John, he's going to live the, the longest, and he's going to end up writing the, the Gospel of John and his three epistles and the book of Revelation, and Peter, of course, is uh, going to write his two epistles, and as Jerry mentioned, he's going to kind of dictate this gospel to Mark and really be a leader within the church. The first dozen chapters or so of Acts are focused on Peter and his ministry. So I think he's, again, he's kind of shifting away from his, his public ministry and focusing more on his private ministry amongst these 12 disciples, and particularly the, the three, the inner circle. That's why it takes him with him to see Jairus' daughter raised and uh, for the transfiguration later on when he's praying in the garden of gethsemane those are the three that he says come with me and pray so i think he's really trying to pour into them as the leaders even amongst the 12. john was pastor in ephesus for many 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 years which was one of the bigger early churches yeah very influential in the rest of the rest of our history yep and got the first letter from Jesus in the book of Revelation to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira. Peter yeah. asked John to ask Jesus who the one was who was going to betray him. Yeah. Eating dinner and Passover. Yeah, John was the beloved one, right? He was leaning back on the bosom of the Father, and uh, yeah, they were definitely closest to Jesus, and that's the best thought as to why. All right, well, let's pick up in verse 38. <clears throat> we'll read 38 through 42. And speaking of, we see John here again. So John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us, and forever... For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of the name of because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if uh, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. So, a lot going on there. Uh, which one of the the disciples brought this complaint before the Lord? John, right? And what was John's nickname? 
What's that? Yeah, he, along with his brother, was, they were called the sons of thunder, right? Uh, they were quick to, to act, you know, act now and think later kind of people. And in fact, in Luke's account, it's right after this that James and John are, uh, the, the sons of thunder are asking for rain of fire to come down on Samaria because they wouldn't accept Jesus to come in. Um, so to have that kind of nickname really kind of conveys that you're, you're wanting to, to act, right? Wanting to see some action. And so now John has this problem with some unnamed dude who is casting out demons. And remember that it was just uh, a little while ago that John's nine friends were unable to cast out this demon as John was up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now this unnamed guy, he is out there and he's able to seemingly cast out demons uh, effectively, that it's actually something that he is doing successfully. And John here isn't angry because this guy is not able to cast out demons. Again, it would seem that he was able to do so, but because he did so in the name of Jesus and he wasn't a part of their little group. He didn't, John didn't know this guy's name, and yet he was out proclaiming the name of Jesus and uh, doing these amazing works in the name of Jesus. And I imagine that if he were out there and he were casting out demons in the name of John the Baptist or some other rabbi or teacher, that John probably wouldn't have a problem with it. Um, it seems like his big issue is that he's not a part of their, their little group, and he wants to, to come and make sure that Jesus knows about it and that Jesus is being protected and defended and his name isn't being uh, maligned in any way. And just as Spurgeon argued that uh, a lion doesn't really need protecting, you just need to let him out of his cage, uh, Jesus, the, the lion of Judah, he certainly doesn't need protecting from John, does he? Um, this is just a, another issue of pride on, on John's part, saying that, uh, well, we, we tried to stop this man. We told him that uh, you're, you're not with us. You're not part of our group. Jesus called us. He didn't call you. What are you doing out there casting out these demons? And Jesus rebukes him for that. He rebukes him for this narrow exclusivism uh, that John is saying, no, it's just our group. It's just us who... Uh, really are, are the chosen ones. And it can be kind of easy to, to fall into this mindset that, that John has, that we are the only ones, right? This kind of concept that uh, Elijah had in 1 Kings 19 when he says, God, I'm, I'm the only one. I'm the only prophet here. What am I doing? And God says, no, I have 7,000 others that, that I have reserved. Those who haven't bowed a knee to Baal, they're mine. And uh, you're not alone. And again, we can kind of have this same concept um, kind of get in our way, thinking uh, living in this booming Christian metropolis of Payson, Utah, right? That it's, it's all about us and we're the only ones. And we can kind of get into this mindset of, oh man, woe is me. Um, and yet that's not the case at all, right? There are so many other Christians out there. We just have to open up our eyes and realize that it's, much bigger than, than we ourselves. Here in a couple months, we're getting ready to, to go to a conference where there are going to be, uh, right now there are nearly 7,000 other Christians who are signed up. I'm sure there are going to be more than that there. And that's just one of many other conferences. There are so many other people outside of Pacing, Utah. We shouldn't be having this, this narrow, exclusive mindset like, uh, like John has here, like Elijah had. Um, it can be way too easy for us to to think that 
everybody else who isn't fully in line with us, they're somehow on the outs, that they're the bad guys if they don't agree with us on all these concepts. Uh, John Grasmick, in his commentary, he says that the undeveloped faith of the exorcist in verse 38, or anyone else who acts in Jesus' name in verse 41, should be encouraged rather than ruined by harsh criticism or sectarian bias. That's a, a good word that we should listen to and, and heed. We, not, we ought not always be quick uh, to, to judge. We should be quick to listen and slow to speak, right? And that should be in, in every aspect of life and every element of our faith, but particularly when it comes to uh, taking a position on whether or not somebody is in Christ or not. Um, that's not a, a ministry that God has given us to, to go around examining people's fruit and determining uh, ultimately whether or not they are in Christ or not. There are certain aspects where, uh, to some degree, we have to make such a, a conclusion. But ultimately, God is the one who makes that determination. And yet, on the other hand, uh, we should also realize that Jesus is never endorsing some kind of universalism, that everybody is saved, that everybody is a believer. Uh, this man who we're reading about, he actually claimed the name of Jesus, and he had fruit to, to back that up. Had he been casting out demons in, in some other name, then surely Jesus would have said, no, he is against us. But he was claiming the name of Jesus. And so we must be discerning and uh, differentiating between primary issues and secondary issues. Issues that are um, definitional to the gospel, to Christian orthodoxy versus uh, issues that, that are not. And that doesn't mean that we can't address other secondary issues. We definitely can. Uh, we just shouldn't write somebody out of the kingdom based upon these secondary issues. And Jeremy does a, a good job of identifying the, the practical effects of disagreements on, on different areas or different degrees of doctrine um, by saying that if there's a difference of, of primary doctrine, then this should affect fellowship with others. Uh, whether or not we're going to fellowship with somebody, if somebody says that, no, Jesus isn't God, Jesus never died from or died for our sins, and uh, he isn't living and risen, then we're not going to put our arm around them and call them a, a brother or sister in Christ. However, secondary issues um, are convictions that affect ministry with others. So not that they're unimportant, but they're not on that same primary level. And then doubtful things are, are conscience matters that should affect our friendships. And so we need to properly distinguish between these different things. All right, so once again, Jesus is not advocating for a complete non-judgment zone like our, our world wants to have like absolutely no judgment um, just accept everybody embrace everybody for, for everything but instead he's warning against being overly divisive and we should realize that the church of God that the bride of Christ is much larger than those who fall within our specific set of beliefs so there are people who are outside of our four walls who are Christians even though we differ on some secondary issues. And in fact, not only should we realize that they are Christians, but that we can learn from them, that we can benefit from them. This last Wednesday I was teaching really against Presbyterians and how they uh, baptize their infants. And 
saying very clearly that we don't agree with that. We don't think that's right. However, uh, we can see and we can learn from them that they're exemplary in their, their child rearing and their, their catechizing of their children and they're emphasizing family worship and they're advocating for uh, good Christian education. Those are good things that we can emulate, that we can practice ourselves. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about post-millennialism and our, our differences and agreements with them, not primary issues that say that they are outside of the kingdom and, and we're in the kingdom. We think that uh, these aren't primary issues that are gospel-centered. They're still important. Uh, however, we do disagree with them, but we still recognize that they are very optimistic and active in their evangelism. Those are good traits that we, again, could learn from and should emulate. Uh, Pentecostals, they also tend to be very active in their evangelism, very excited about who God is and wanting to share the the excitement that they have for God with others in their evangelism. Uh, we need to abandon the, the all-or-nothing mentality that our culture has embraced, that they seem to kind of project upon us, that we need to uh, either reject somebody entirely, right? Uh, write them off, uh, cancel culture type of mentality. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Or we need to be absolutely inclusive and embrace every aspect of who somebody is. Uh, those are both ditches that we need to avoid. Right? We can acknowledge the, the good that somebody has, the good things that certain groups have, uh, without embracing them entirely. Um, being tolerant used to mean uh, accepting somebody, living at peace with somebody who had a, a difference of opinion. And it's come to mean not recognizing or acknowledging a, a difference of opinion at all. And in fact, if you don't fully embrace or fully agree with somebody then, uh, and, and celebrate who they are, then you are liable to be called intolerant, right? We need to reject those premises. And even as we can disagree with, with other Christians on secondary issues and uh, yet recognize areas of strength and still learn from them, we can also recognize commendable aspects of non-believing groups as well. Uh, for instance, we can say that... Uh, Muslims have a, a tendency to pray more than Christians do, right? Or that Latter-day Saints, they really place a, a strong emphasis, a strong focus on the family, and that's a good thing. That's a commendable thing. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, she points out the fact that the LGBT community, they are very hospitable. These are all good things, and we can recognize these good things without uh, compromising ourselves and... Uh, saying, well, we're going to fully embrace all these different groups. We should be able to um, recognize a good and still be able to say, well, a Muslim, even though they pray a lot, they're not praying to the one God of the universe, right? We, we reject them as brothers or sisters in Christ because they're not in Christ. Um, and the, the LGBT community, even though they are loving and hospitable, we want to emulate that. However, that's a, a simple practice that we want to avoid. All right, any thoughts or questions on any of that? Uh, Peter, or John rather, being rebuked for his narrow exclusivism, how we ought to take and implement that in our current society. All right, Steve. This uh, all or nothing mentality, what it really means is you're never good enough. Either what do you mean? You're all good, or you're no good, but you're never good enough because you never will be good enough. And yeah. so it's kind of 
It's very self-defeating. And the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? And we have to start there, that it's the, the meek who inherit the kingdom of God. We have to start with this uh, understanding of we're not good enough, nobody's good enough. And um, yeah, it's, yeah. All right, uh, go ahead. Yeah, Jesus is the Passover blood of the Lamb of God. Yep. He takes our sins and gives us his righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. Amen. And so, to me, Jesus is everything. To you? I'm not everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, people know me and they realize that, you know. But, uh, and so... And that's where we have to come to. This understanding of Jesus being everything, right? All right, well, let's pray and we will fellowship and continue in worship. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray that you would give us uh, wisdom and discernment as we seek to uh, honor you in everything we seek, think, say, and do. Uh, help us not to be too divisive and not to be too inclusive, but to represent you well. We pray this in your name. Amen.